find it in the words of the mm. research. Uh, this difference is a very important one in world cultures, but it's been ignored in virtually all discussions of public policy in the U.S. and elsewhere. And that's the reason why the, my book is controversial, because I'm pointing out that we have these differences, and they lie behind the most serious problems that we face going forward. And the three that I talk about primarily are long-term poverty, immigration, and also the problems of field failed states overseas, countries that are falling apart. In all these cases, the real source of the problem, I think, is cultural difference, that the groups involved or the nations involved are not individualist. They don't have the characteristics of the Western culture. And that has made it very difficult for them to deal with an individualist society in America and also with the demands of governing themselves overseas. So America ends up as the leader of a world in which it is vastly the most important individualistic country. But the countries it's trying to help and the nation and the groups it's trying to help are not themselves individualist. And so we face a serious problem, serious challenge. We have to come to terms with the non-Western world, but we cannot imagine that people in that world are like ourselves. Quite the contrary, they're not. There are important differences in what life is about. While we accept that up to a point, we also don't want to lose our character as an individualist country because those features were essential to everything America has achieved. We can't just ignore culture. We have to talk about it. We have to discuss it. We have to make sure that while America becomes multicultural, that it remains an individualistic country. Well, it, don't you feel that individualism is a root of wonder and curiosity, and that's what has us leading in technologies throughout the world? Because thank God we're still have a certain sense of curiosity and wonder that provokes yeah. us, the Steve Jobs of the world, to invent stuff right. and think outside the box. Curiosity and innovation. Yes. Uh, that, that's true. Those are all great features, but we should, we're kidding ourselves if we think that living in a free society is easy. One of the things that I try to do in the book is emphasize how demanding a free society is. It's in some ways more demanding than living under a more collective, more authoritarian system where you get told what to do. Americans are free to decide what they want to do, but whatever they want to do generates its own obligations. So actually, most Americans do not live free lives. They're not actually free in the sense of carefree. Their lives are full of obligations which they've taken on, partly because society expects it, partly because of what they're trying to achieve. For example, we all agreed to be on this talk show at this time weeks ago or days ago, so, so considerable time ago. I put that on my calendar. I made sure I didn't forget about it. You guys are in the same position. And so we're not free. We're obligated to achieve our own goals. And those burdens are heavy. So what you're really talking about is what you called autonomy. That is self-governing. Yes. Self-ruling. Yeah, yes. personal, and, personal responsibility. Right. Correct. And responsibility, the sense of individual ownership of a set of obligations that is a distinctly core important western value and it's not found in the non-western world in the non-west the sense of obligation is more collective it has to do with the whole group or the whole nation the leaders decide and you follow orders you don't really have personal autonomy and choice in the way that we assume and that's the way other people most people in the world prefer that they don't want to be burdened with the burdens of freedom but we have a lot of that problem right here in the West and right here in America, and I think you, you refer to it as long-term poverty. 
Yes, uh, and most of the launch are poor are either from Africa originally, blacks who came as slaves, and also Hispanics who came from Latin America. Right. Those groups do not have an individualist tradition behind them. And when they come to a free country, they encounter serious difficulties. It isn't that anyone's being unfair to them, although that can occur. It's rather that the demands of a free society are very considerable. And I see this every day in the classroom. Hispanic students, if they even get to NYU, and it's a very competitive school, they have a hard time here because they have to decide a whole lot of things which, uh, which they don't have to do in the old country. And they also have to row their own boat. They have to compete. And, and many of them are terrified of competition. This is not something that is very important in the non-Western world. Uh, Lawrence, uh, this is Hugo Faria. Uh, just yeah. wanted to mention that um, I am finishing a working paper on the role of culture and institutions in economic development. And, well, first of all, to make your point, Latin America overall is basically comprised of collectivistic countries. The United States is the most individualistic country. The second one is the United Kingdom. And in general, Western Europe also classifies as uh, as, as individualistic, but none Correct. as much as the United States. That's true. And um, I totally agree that the inflow of uh, Latin Americans into the United States are having, say, or are causing some problems precisely because of their cultural background. And interestingly enough, uh, economists, uh, as of late, have become highly interested in the role of culture. And there is uh, a lot of evidence which suggests that the institutions, that is, the rules of the game that a country adopts, are basically determined by culture. Uh, And, uh, well, the fact then that Latin America is a basket case where basically... Uh, development and growth is uh, very much reduced. It's intimately associated with a cultural background of collectivism, which basically nowadays leads to socialism. Uh, we have uh, on on the paper we have a graph, a Cartesian plane, where we measure on one axis uh, the level of individualism on the vertical axis. Uh, institutions measured by the Economic Freedom of the World Index, and all of the highly developed countries, they plot on the northeast quadrant. That is, yeah. they have high levels of, of individualism and high levels of institutional quality. Just about every single Latin American country falls on, on the southwest quadrant, yeah. And uh, there are f- there are a few who, well, by some political events, they've been able to raise their institutional quality, but they actually face a, a, a strong tension because you have, say, more capitalism, which is mainly for individualistic individuals, and the background is collectivism. So the, the goal, of course, is that over time, through... People in a learning by doing process where they understand the cost of benefits of the newly found growth driven by high institutions, by high quality institutions, then they start to evolve culturally 
but it's a slow process. And of course, the ultimate goal is to bring those countries to the first quadrant where, yeah. where you know, they, there are countries with both that are individualistic, they are capitalistic, and therefore that two rules reinforce each other, and that creates a virtual circle. What, now, what, what countries would you say that... Well, I just want to emphasize that when I say individualism versus collectivism, I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking about a feature of the popular culture, yeah. about what okay. people think life is about. And, and the collective cultures that dominate the non-Western world occur mostly in countries that do not have a big government, do not have a welfare state, do not even control their own territories. They're weakly governed. And a feature that I emphasize in my book is that an individualistic culture, though we criticize government, and although we're full of dissatisfactions, we still have the strongest government the world has ever seen. And we have it because of the moralism of the culture, the fact that people insist on government doing the right thing. So we, in fact, have a fair number of programs that are designed to help people deal with various problems in their lives. But we don't do this because we're trying to get away from individualism. On the contrary, most of those programs are premised on people being employed, uh, having a work history, uh, having gotten through school. Whether we make demands on people that we help, we expect them also to help themselves. So we don't see big government as causing collectivism. I don't believe it is, in fact, the major cause of collectivism, perhaps slightly, not a whole lot. The major cause of collectivism in American culture is not big government. Rather, it's the origin of many of our people from outside the Western world. It's the fact that many of our people come yeah. from Africa, from Latin America, from yeah. Asia, also yeah. Native Americans. These groups are the most troubled in our society. But and it's because they're not individualists, so they have to learn individualism. Okay, but well, here. well, what about Asians, for example? They seem to be very successful. Uh, East uh, Asia. Only in certain senses. Asians are successful so far as getting through school goes. They do very well in school. Right. But after they get to the university, then they run into problems because for Asians, education mostly consists of learning the right answers and repeating them on tests and papers. Yeah, rote. Yeah, yeah rote learning. That's what education means in Asia. And most immigrants to America from Asia bring that attitude with them. So their children go to school here and they do very well as long as school is about providing the, the right answers. But in college, we start, we, start, we start to see, we expect people to start thinking for themselves, to making personal arguments about things, yeah. even disagreeing with the professors. And here, Asians have a really hard time. And so do people from other, other non-Western countries. I mean, probably a third of my students are from non-Western countries, or they're the children of immigrants from those countries. They all defer to authority. They all have questions and problems with questioning authority. They don't want to have to come up with answers themselves. As far as individualism goes, it's the the native-born students who are the the strongest because they grow up in a culture and where there's a lot of questioning and where they have to settle many questions for themselves. The Asians are less successful than they seem to be. And it's not that that they don't have problems. They do have problems, though they're less serious than the other groups I've mentioned. What about over time? Do the second or first or second generations born in the USA, do they become more individualistic? Yes. Uh, there are several studies that suggest the impact. It's, it takes about, I'm generalizing here, maybe three generations for people from overseas to adopt native <laughs> attitudes. And those studies, it's important to note, 
mostly are based on European groups that immigrated here, let us say, 100 years ago, and then they were tracked to see how their attitudes changed. Today, the groups coming are not from Europe. They're coming from the non-Western world, and therefore the cultural difference between them and uh, the dominant culture in America is much greater than it was at the time of these studies. So I would say we're talking about at least a century before people who come here from the non-Western world become thoroughly attuned to an individualist culture. Does intermarriage help? Uh, presumably. Um, it's hard to know how much that affects uh, the dominant culture that people get from their parents when they grow up here. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly when students leave a, a non-Western home and go to school, they confront a culture which is much more individualist than the home. But then they have great difficulty learning because they don't understand the school is competitive. And, and there, it's hard for people to, to recognize this. Uh, most people from the non-West are interested in security. They're interested in adjusting to the world. They're not interested in getting ahead. That getting ahead is not something one does in most non-Western countries. You try to survive. And so people are tuned to the environment. So, Whereas in American individualist culture promotes people to seek change in the environment. So they, their lives move from the inside out. But the immigrants are, are living life from the outside in. They're taking their cues from the environment. Now, that is not the American way. And those who do that generally stay at the bottom. So um, uh, this is Max speaking to you. Uh, yeah. Um, I wrote a book as well. Now, I'm, uh, I wrote my book uh, considering what do we do now, okay? Yeah. Since the birth rate is very uh, negative among the uh, Anglo-American the population of the United States yeah. and, and the progressive rules have, have created a lot of divorce with free-handed, no-fault divorce in all our states, courtesy of Ronald yeah. Reagan in 1960. What is it that Americans have got to do to realize that there's a right. tidal wave of Latin Americans coming to this country where you can't, uh, we're not really successful at imposing English upon them. Uh, the best we're going to get is a bilingual society going forward. What is it that we can do as an American institutional right. commercial sector to open up the Latin American world and economies, weed out the corruption by by uh, demand of the trade of the U.S. dollar throughout Latin America like we have in Ecuador and, and, and Panama? Will that change these graphs entirely if we uh, impose the dollar? Let me speak first to the domestic problem and go to the international problem. The main thing we have to do with immigration is simply reduce the inflow. We have to cut the intake by half, I estimate. Yes. And there are various ways to do that, various ways we can change immigration policy to cut the inflow. How to do that, we can talk about it in more detail. But the basic idea is to limit the numbers so that assimilation has a better chance. And assimilation is going to depend mostly on the children of immigrants going to school and learning a couple things very, very quickly and early. One of them is that they have to compete. They have to do their best, and they have to accept that. And that's hard by itself. The second thing they have to learn is a set of rules about good behavior. Although we're a free country, we don't tell people how to live. We do tend to teach people at a young age. Manners. They, should, they have to observe certain civilities, like uh, keeping your promises and, and obeying the law and paying your taxes and being fair to other people. Those things have to be learned. And then people can leave home and go off and, yet, and know how to behave in a free country. So those are what we try to do. And I think those... Those, those pressures from the school and also from churches and community groups are the best hope we have to teach people about an individual culture. Now, you mentioned a bunch of reforms you'd like to see in Latin America. I don't believe that that's very feasible until the, the, the societies in those countries 
become more moralistic themselves. They have to adopt a more individualistic view where we have generalized ideas about right and wrong, which we expect of government, and we force this on them. We don't tolerate corruption. We expect efficiency. We expect people to be accountable to the society. Those attitudes don't, although you may mouth those words, you may obey them in some pro forma sense, they don't actually cut very deep in most Latin countries because of the incidence of corruption. Well, but wait, but wait a second. I have to. Passive. I want to. I want to put the yeah. reins on this argument in a second here. Okay. You want. You want to stop the flow, and I'm. Yeah. Sa- and I'm saying since slow I down the flow. slow down the flow. Of course. Yeah. Um, we have a political party that wants open borders and wants everybody. So that makes it an issue. But doesn't it make sense to pull votes into their economies, impose a dollarized economy, and squeeze the hell out of them so they're not as corrupt? Otherwise, their cultures will never change, and they'll come here corrupt, they'll come here collectivist, they won't have manners. Mm-hmm. Um, since I'm of Latin descent, I've seen the difference just between my parents, who were industrialists, um, capitalists from the original yeah. Cuban immigration, compared to what I see now with the wet foot, dry foot Cubans that come after 1990, who are more uh, uh, more representative of what they're, Mr. Fonse yeah, is saying. They're gaming the system. Gaming the system. They have no manners. Uh, they're collectivists. Uh, they they see that other people in, in that have been in the United States longer than them are in, feel entitled to stuff. Uh, you can see how they cling to it like Velcro. And they're very jealous of people like myself and my parents who have actually made it in this country and been able to employ a lot of people. Well, and right, but, but remember, Cubans as a group, are quite successful among Hispanics. Right. In fact, they're the only group among Hispanics which social policy experts don't really think are in trouble. It's the other groups. It's, it's, it's Puerto Ricans, it's Mexicans, people in Central America. They are in much more trouble than the Cubans. And the reason is the Cubans have a much stronger heritage from Europe. My, my great-grandfather came from Cuba, and he came here with nothing. His, his father was thrown out of Cuba after a political revolution. This occurred in the late 19th century. Uh, he came here... He sent his son to Harvard, and the, and the, the, the son went into business and made a lot of money. And, you know, uh, that's... We like Cuban those stories story. here. <laughs> we, we really appreciate those stories here because we're only... Cubans are only 4% of the, right. the Hispanic population in the United States, but own over 35% of the publicly traded Hispanic companies sure. on the exchange. No, no, Cubans, we're not talking about Cubans when we talk about the Hispanic problem. We're talking about people mostly from Mexico, Mexico and Central America. These groups are actually ethnic, in terms of ethnic terms, they're actually mostly Native Americans. They're coming from strong Native American roots in rural areas of Latin America. They're extremely disadvantaged, low education, they speak Spanish, and they have some minimal acquaintance with Spanish culture, but they're really not in any sense Western people. Okay, people my, my yeah, no, you're they're right. Very impressive. No, wait, uh, doesn't get you very far in America. Larry, let me tell you, my mother was a school teacher in Chicago, and some of her students from Mexico did not speak Spanish. Okay, that's also possible uh, yeah. because they have native languages. Right, they're native languages. Yeah, sure. Now, yeah. Uh, Larry. There are measures of assimilation, which I cite in my book, uh, and uh, these groups are at the absolute bottom. Larry, uh, anybody else, and they've had a hard time just getting around it. Now, to make to make your point, or try to elaborate more on your point of limiting the inflow, uh, let me see what you. I would like to know what you think about the following argument, and it's that uh, 
the reason, the main reason why there is so many people from Latin America who want to come and live here, it's because the, the economic conditions in those countries uh, do not generate growth, and therefore their standard of living does not improve. And jobs, 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 jobs. Right, right, right. So then, uh, so the thing is that uh, how about just as we, the United States, have traditionally exported our political system, democracy, and that's why you see so many countries in Latin America that are democratic, then don't you think that we should also emphasize exporting our economic system? How about the currency? For That's one of them. Very, in other words, the, the currency is very important because you depoliticized a very important area of the economy, which the is subjected to a lot of corruption. Yeah, the printing of well, their money. Well, likewise, likewise uh, you know, no... No trade barriers, basically free trade that also helps immensely, particularly in a con in in an area in a region like Latin America, which is very mercantilist. You know, very much yeah. prone to crony capitalism. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, well, I, I think I, I might be positive uh, from an economic point of view. I'm not going to speak to that directly, but I don't think that the problems in Latin American societies are ultimately separable from the non-individualist, non-moralistic, more collective-minded attitudes of the culture. By collective mind here, I don't really mean big government, yeah. because these countries have weak governments, yeah. small governments. You mean a psychological effect, not a, a social effect. No, it's not. I'm not no, talking no, but, about what but, government ought to do. I'm but, saying that government is too weak to control even their own right. territory. No, no, but the, the point and that the I'm making... isn't low income. They're actually... These incomes in Latin America, including Mexico, have risen quite a bit in the last couple of decades. They're not, they're, they, they, Mexico is now a middle-income country, actually. The problem isn't that, it's the drug gangs. It's the fact that these countries can't control their own territory. Right. The Central American countries are ruled by drug gangs, and the people there are fleeing violence. And then they come to the United States, they all claim asylum, and under the asylum rules, we, the border is essentially open. We cannot close the border. And so I, 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 the way things are going, it's 100,000, about 100,000 illegal aliens cross the border every month. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, gonna, we're looking at the, the total export of Central America to America. That's where we're headed. I mean, that would be an utter disaster from the point of view of the United States or even from the point of view of the people who are coming here. So why they're isn't the... their own country with them. They are not really a... And their problems. Country. Yes, and their problems with them. Right. So why is it the professional class, people like yourself aren't out publicly supporting Trump's uh, immigration yes. policy. I mean, the uh, the wall is, I know, I understand the wall is symbolic. And I know that the majority of people come yes. in with expired visas and they just stay here. They come here traveling oh, and they get yeah. they get in. But they at least tend to see, if they come in here on a visa, chances are they've got some kind of capital, some kind of ability to either yeah. rent or own property. Yeah. We live in a community that's really bizarre. We live in uh, this uh, this radio station's on a, in Nixon's uh, Nixon's Key Biscayne, where the non-resident alien pays more real estate taxes here than the American citizen because they don't have homestead exemptions and they're buying million-dollar homes. So you can have yeah. someone yeah. someone paying eight thousand dollars in taxes and your next-door neighbor paying ninety-five thousand, and they're right next door to each other. Yeah. Of course, one might have a pool and the other one doesn't, yeah. but you, know, you get the drift here. It's economic. Yeah. No, no, there are a lot of 
great many rich people from Latin America have moved to America somehow and gotten into Miami, and they basically see it as an escape hatch from their own societies. Right. Yeah, well, Venezuelans, you, uh, yeah. Uh, Dr. Fasa can, can can attest to that. Now, but what am I what am I saying? I'm saying is. Uh, you're coming. Your, your book, I, I'm, I'm assuming, is a, from a more social economic uh, pretense, and there has to be some type of uh, executive leadership on the part of a presidency, a part of a Department of yeah. Treasury, to to strangle Latin American economies to stop manipulating their currencies against their own people by just dollarizing. I remember when Correa, the president of Ecuador, wanted a third term. He wanted to do the whole mumbo-jumbo, change the Constitution, and the Americans just said, hey, my friend, your line of credit is going to be cut off if you try to run for president again. Yeah. You, well, but that's, other countries in Latin America, I'm thinking of Chile, I think, believe it was Chile or Argentina, mm-hmm. Argentina, I think, they actually adopted the dollar. Right, but then they, they broke... They do what you are recommending, and it didn't last very long. Because of corruption. <laughs> politically, the government there has to inflate the currency. Right. That's well, been they, true for a very long time. They really didn't... is politically weak because the people... The culture is collective-minded. I don't mean that in a political Mm -hmm. sense, but people don't take responsibility for government or politics. They don't think they're personally responsible. So a large number of people, including ordinary middle-class people, engage in corruption. They pay bribes to get government to do anything for them. And, And that's routine in Latin America. It's not routine in America. We don't accept that. Our public will not tolerate that. So basically, converting to that in Latin America. so converting to the dollar uh, on a more widespread basis wouldn't cure this. In other words, not well, just yeah. cure it completely. No, it would, it would lead yeah. people. You, you could totally eliminate the United States. Imagine America didn't exist. I don't think it would cause it would, I mean, Latin America would certainly be worse off because they wouldn't have the economic ties to America to help help them economically. But the fundamental character of a Latin American society would not change. It would still be a non-individualist, passive, reactive society where government is exploited and government is not accountable because nobody really believes the rules apply to them. Uh, you don't really have the rule of law. You don't really have people paying taxes. You don't have an efficient government. Uh, and uh, in the United States, you do. That is the basic difference. So basically, we need uh, uh, 20 Pinochets that just control <laughs> right-wing dictators controlling all the governments. Oh, no, I don't know what the answer is. I think <laughs> it really comes down to social reforms where, I mean, actually the nearest thing to it might have been the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Uh, there you had an upsurge, uh, well-led upsurge of rebels, really, against the prevailing regime. Right. Uh, and they installed a better regime. And for a while, it looked like Mexico was headed towards a, a halfway decent uh, government. But then it became an oligarchy governed by a single party. Right. The Revolution Party. And only recently did there a, a second party emerge where there is now serious competition for the uh, Okay, Lawrence. And yet, overall, uh, administration in Mexico is corrupt and inefficient. And the schools are terrible. And people run away. I mean, and lately, much of the country, especially in the north, has been taken over by drug gangs. Right. Okay, Lawrence, let me give you uh, an example of a solution that's starting to develop. In Brazil, 25% of the population is now evangelical Protestant, and and they elected this President Bolsonaro in response to huge corruption problems 
uh, both yeah. mostly on the left, but really all the parties. And I think Bolsonaro is a former military guy. He is, uh, so far, he seems to be pretty clean, and he's trying to make some real economic reform. Yeah. So maybe uh, I think that's the, the future, because yeah, yeah. Protestant, especially yeah. evangelical Protestantism, is very much individual responsibility, yes. and maybe that's the future for America, Get, uh, Latin America. I, is, I agree with you. That is the most, the most positive change that I've heard about in Latin America, is precisely the growth of Protestantism, which is a faith which does emphasize individual responsibility. It confronts people with issues that they have to decide. It makes them impatient with bad behavior. It makes them more likely to be serious about government honesty. Uh, yes, it's a very positive sign. In fact, if, Ameri if Latin America were to become thoroughly and seriously Protestant, it wouldn't happen overnight. But when and if that happens, you will see a quite different society down there. Yep. And it will become more formidable. And you will see stronger government, stronger militaries. And you will see countries that the United States could actually form alliances with. And it would be worthwhile. I mean, that, that, that would be great. That would be too super, but and then, it's a ways off. And then we could burn the Jesuits at the stake, as I've wanted to do well, since high school. I, I wouldn't, I'm not saying the Catholic Church is a totally negative uh, influence. I, think I am. Too strong. And we have to remember, Point the Catholic seven. Church was the main force that created a moralistic culture in Europe, and it was that culture yep. that was taken over by Protestantism that then came to America. Right. So the, we owe the Catholic Church a lot. Uh, but right now, I would have to agree the Latin, church, the Latin Church has not been a constructive force in Latin America, and they need to get serious about enforcing good behavior. Let, yeah. me, let me go back to Asia, Larry. Uh, yeah. South Korea, for example, it, it's still uh, very collectivist, but has a level of economic freedom which is above the average, and that explains the progress that they've experienced. And then my hope is that by living in an economic system, which by itself is individualistic, then Koreans will eventually change their culture. Although, of course, we have to recognize that culture is very slow-moving slow over time. Yeah. And that's why we, need, we have to start, as Manuel was saying, with a change of the rules of the game, the economic game, so that people start to see the benefits of of changing the culture because i mean it's just a matter of cost and benefits now also talking about asia the sole country at least in our sample that has made a full transition to having a culture uh, mostly individualistic and also high levels of economic institutions is japan so the thing is that here you have a good example from Asia who has, who has made a full transition to the Northeast Quadrant, and therefore I think that there is hope. But of course, I agree that it's something that it takes time because it, culture yeah. moves very, very slowly. Well, but in Korea, I think about half the people are Christian now, half are Protestant, yeah. quarter no, that, Protestant. That's quarter. true. Korea is, however, different. Korea is the only country in Asia which has had serious influence from Western religion. Uh, but I want to I want to agree with your larger point, which is the Asian countries have managed to become relatively wealthy and well-governed by, by world standards, even though they remain much more collective-minded than the West. Uh, Korea is now a rich country. The same was true for Taiwan. Japan is even richer. Hong Kong? And the really interesting thing is Japan is also well-governed, even 
South Korea or Taiwan. In fact, Japan is the only large country outside the West which scores at the top in world government rankings of government quality. Right. Japan is right up there with the United States, Korea, uh, France, Germany, Britain, and so on. Now, Lawrence, and, how, is that, how is that measured? Uh, the ability to collect taxes or the level of crime? Corruption. They, have, they have six indicators Hofstede. that have to do with um, rule of law, quality of administration, uh, lack of an improper political interference, uh, accountability to the public. There are six indicators. And uh, on those indicators, most Western countries, including the United States, rate right at the top. And most non-Western countries rate way, way, way lower, especially China, especially Russia, and so on and so on. But Japan is up there at the top. And Taiwan and and Korea are just a little bit lower. Interestingly, Uh, this really started with Hofstede when he tried to measure culture at IBM worldwide. Yes, got it. Yes. And then, and Hofstede, then, yeah. well, it, it, I mean, to the point, Larry, uh, Larry that uh, this dimension of culture is the one that has the greatest impact on economic development, more yeah. more than trust, more than social capital. That has been shown uh, uh, in a true. recent in, fact, in, in a recent in American the economic summary. He finds a correlation between individualism and per capita income of 0.82. That's right. Which is really extraordinary. That's right. That's uh, right. And, that's right. And, uh, so obviously Hofstede was onto something, but there are a number of the whole slew of later authors who have found essentially the same thing. Uh, I rely on this research heavily in my book, and it's important to note that there's virtually no disagreement among the scholars. They basically say only the West is individualist. But there are a few cases, like Japan, where they found a way to get rich and powerful, even though they're not individualists. Uh, and uh, I do see some some influence, some some indications that parts of China, the elite in China, is becoming impatient with collective rule, and they would like to have more freedom. But I don't see that in Japan. Japan is and remains a highly collective country where people don't think of themselves as individuals, but they nevertheless behave well, and they're very effective economically. So the West doesn't have a corner on getting rich and powerful. Right. Uh, but the non-Western countries, yeah. including Asia, have a problem with innovation because they don't they don't free up individuals and they don't obligate individuals to sort this sort out their own problems. People find their direction mostly from what they're told by leaders. Right. So all the European, all the non-individualist countries are deferential to authority, and they basically look to leadership. Whereas the United States distributes the burdens of freedom very, very widely. So the, the problems of solving problems, of making things work better, of getting ahead and making money, yeah. but in general making things work better, those burdens are spread more widely in America than any other country. Absolutely. And that is the basic reason why America is so rich and powerful. The, there, there is a recent paper by Asimoglu where they model exactly what you're saying. They, yeah. they talk about the existence of an asymmetric equilibrium where the United States, the most individualistic country, is the leader in radical innovation. Yeah. And even Western European countries, what they basically do is that they have, say, what they call a more coddled capitalism where they can have more social insurance, but basically they live of the innovations that the United States generates. Uh, there's more innovation in America, but Europe is not fundamentally different. Uh, I just spent two weeks in, in London talking about my book. The British are 
After all, they invented it. Uh, of the, course. The Europeans <laughs> are the origins of the individualist culture that America has today. It was given a more radical spin by the British, also by the Dutch, and those countries founded America, and America is even more individualist. Uh, so we owe it all to the Europeans, and they are still rather like us, and they're doing rather well. The Europeans, after all, are rich, uh, well-governed. Uh, they are also increasingly assertive in military matters. We need their help. We need to have uh, European support in dealing with the Russians and the Chinese and all that. Uh, and the military is a serious test of government. And again, the paradox is that individualist countries actually have the strongest government, even though we also make the greatest demands on individuals. So this is why we are running the world. Now, do you see that the, the high tax system that has pretty much overcome Europe in, in the name of open borders and homogeny, they, they've taxed themselves to the gills. They don't have individual freedoms to defend themselves in their homes, doesn't that, isn't that a, a in peril now with the Muslim immigration that they're, that they're suffering from? Uh, I think they're, they are highly taxed, but the main reason for that is the welfare state, which they had before they had immigration, and they've had it for several decades, and it's, it's too expensive. And the main bogey here is the health programs, which are more expensive than anybody imagined when they were first enacted. The same for our health programs. Uh, immigration is a serious issue in Europe, but it's not primarily economic. It has to do with the social cohesion of the countries, and especially they, the immigrants they're bringing in from Africa well, and not the Middle East. They, those Africans, those immigrants, like ours, are problems. They have problems adjusting because they're not individualists. Right. Life for them is about survival. It's not about making your own way in life, and therefore they have terrible problems. Uh, so also, the, you know, you're, are uh, you also because uh, um, I'm I'm trying to stay on I'm trying to stay with you on the social economic premise and pretense of your yeah. uh, of your arguments and, and your statements in your book because since I haven't read your book I'm just clinging to what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, are are you also implying that individualism is the ability to risk capital in investing in things that you yes. don't know are going to be successful or not? Yeah. It's, it's, that's one of many expressions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are lots of ways in which people take risks. I mean, people like me, I'm not, I'm not really a capitalist, but I devote years of effort to writing a book like the one I've just published. That's a, that's a risk. I'm sticking my neck out. I assume the argument is going to come to something. I don't know that at the outset. Uh, I take risks. Um, there's a lot of risks that Americans take, and, and it's exactly their willingness to bear those risks and not be shielded from them, that yields the, um, yields the enormous efficiency of the society. Uh, American life isn't easy. It involves constant uncertainty, constant judgments about what to do. Well, the uh, Cubans here, you know, they go back to Cuba because they just can't stand FPNL. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have to pay electricity. Yeah. They can't stand it. <laughs> they rather have well, the lights off. They, it's insane. Yeah, yeah they <laughs> they pretend to pay and they get pretend electricity in Cuba. All right. <laughs> yeah, they get they get really annoyed. There's one guy that was one. Uh, it was a story told here in the in the studio. The person renamed anonymous, but he was somehow close to us in a way. Uh, and he was like two years away from serious pension after years at in the city of Miami, and he bailed to Cuba and didn't even receive his pension. He just said, "The hell with it. No more money's going to be coming in." He didn't understand the concept of pension that he was going to be actually receiving the the, the fruits of uh, uh, his yeah. long term, and he left. He, and the checks are just sitting there. And he the, went back to well, Cuba. Well, <laughs> the variability to run a pension system like that in an honest way, people can rely on, 
depends upon a government where there's a rule of law. We have that here. And that the capacity to do that comes from the moralism of, of the individualist culture. We're not, we're not happy. We're not going to pay bribes. We're not going to tolerate systematic inefficiency. Well, obviously, government can be improved. It's not perfect. It's something that costs criticism. But and and also, the, uh, the concept of payment to 30, 60, 90-day payment periods, I'm a retailer. I own a, a, an Ace Hardware uh, just below the store, uh, below the studio here. And, yeah, I'm amazed. I'm, all, I'm always blown by the ability to just blindly accept someone paying me in 30 days yeah. from now. Yeah. <laughs> just, am I going to get paid or not? And I don't really think about it. I really don't because someone else is extending 30 yeah. days to me. I mean, so, one of the great features of American culture in the West in general is trust. Trust even of total strangers. This is known as social capital. Trust, social capital. Very high in America. We trust total strangers. We, we collaborate with total strangers, people we meet on the web or over the phone that we don't even ever see. We trust them. And that trust is crucial to an affection economy. You don't find that outside the West. Yeah, I find that... You don't uh, even find it in all Western countries to the same extent. It's a, here's a, a, person, a personal story to share that I believe all of you would benefit from. When I, when I was writing the chapter in my book on how to get how to compete with the FICO score. I'm upset with the FICO score. I find it to be disgusting and just uh, like a ritualistic... You your credit score? Yeah, the yeah, credit yeah, score. Yeah. I find that, that that diminishes people's ability to invest young and early in life because of lack of having credit. So I was thinking about how, how could I create a system that would compete with a FICO score considering my pay grade in terms of I'm not an economist or of anything of the sort. And I look back to my father and, and why I just remembered it is because of something Lawrence just said. We'll do business with total strangers and extend credit. Well, my father, who left me a a fortune of money uh, as a Cuban immigrant, he dealt blindly on a phone, without a fax, just a conversation with a farmer who would send him three trucks, four trucks, 18-wheelers headed towards his warehouse with perishable goods in it from North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington State, full of potatoes, full of... And um, on my father's uh, ability to pay last season, last season, and the, and my father would trust that because he paid well last year, that these apples are coming just as good as last year, even though Mother Nature might not have been so yeah. so uh, benevolent so, so benevolent to the farmer. And the farmer, you know what? The farmer, based on wanting to keep Mr. Cambo as my client, even though my harvest sucked, I'm giving him the best I got, and my father would understand that. And I would hear the conversations. Hey, Howard. Those apples, uh, I know, Rocan. My father was, uh, business was called Rocan, Roberto Cambo, Rocan. Simple as that, R-O-C-A-N. Rocan, you got to forgive me on this. I gave you the best I got. It just wasn't, it's not good enough, is it? He goes, it's not, Howard, but it's okay. We'll sell it. I'm going to take a dollar off a box. <laughs> a well, dollar. See, that's, that's a crucial quality when most countries don't have that. Uh, and Asia doesn't have it except for Japan. Japan is the only country in Asia that's high trust. It's one of the several ways in which Japan is unusual. And that's one reason why they're so efficient, because they trust total strangers. Yeah, and in our case, you know, since it's perishable, you can't return product. You yeah. just have to take it in, uh, and then you go back to Howard and say, Hey, Howard, uh, I wanted to make, you know, five a box. I got to make 350 I want you to remember that. Uh, uh, Rokan, don't you worry. Next year will be better. And sure enough, man, it would be an yeah. honor system. Yeah. And be, and next year, my father would make six bucks a box after taking yeah. it. You know, taking the hit. You see that that attitude, the attitude of trust, the idea of doing the right thing for a total stranger, 
is comes from the moralism of individualist culture. People think that's right. They're not thinking of it in terms of what's in their interest. They simply do what they think is right. Yeah, yeah what are you going to do when no one's looking? That's basically yes, the premise. That's what that's, And that's why the, the, there's really no way to prevent corruption in Latin America because they don't have this kind of culture. People don't say, uh, I'm not going to pay a bribe. I don't care. It's a matter of principle. I will not pay a bribe. I will take any consequence. That's, that's the way, the way Americans are. They basically say, we don't accept uh, violations of the rule of law. And when corruption is found out, especially only people who are influential, they, they, we crack down hard. We come down on public officials who, who corrupt. We hire lawyers to, make, to, to, to bring their own bosses to, car, to court for corruption. I mean, this is incredible to people in Latin America. They don't understand why American politicians allow themselves to be investigated and indicted for crime while they're in office. I mean, no, we get, and we also are successful at getting them extradited to our country yes. so they can do some time. Yeah, and, and that shows you how serious this ethos is. We don't have that outside the West, except for Japan. Japan is really the only country where the rule of law is so sacrosanct that it's almost like the West, and that's why Japan is so formidable. Scandinavian countries are the kings in levels of trust. Yeah, but they're getting in a lot of immigration now. Yeah, so it's also yeah. they're also going to hurt. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll tell you, there, there's, there's so many angles to go about this, but uh, the chicken or the egg theory is what concerns me, because since America pretty much knows how they got here, but uh, they don't really know exactly how long they're going to be able to teach how they got here, because I'm a really, I'm a really concerned. I'm also a, a student. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a school, public school advocate down here. Um, I'm pretty well you known mean, in my a school choice advocate. School choice advocate. I'm really taken aback by public school here. Um, I did poorly in school, but I believe that um, one of the reasons why I was able to make it in life is because I was curious and I was innovative yeah. and I was brave and I risked capital, time, and money on the smallest things that turned out to be okay. Well, you see, what you've done, what the, the willingness to do that, to bear the risks, and to sort out problems with no guidance, that is the crucial thing that makes America a dynamic society. It won't always work out, but by the fact that you and all these other people are doing the very same thing, problems get solved. We find out better ways to do it. We don't wait for direction from above. We don't take orders. Now, occasionally we take orders over some matters. We, a law gets passed, you got to obey it. You get drafted from the military, you got to go to war. Yeah, some things. But in general, we leave it for individuals to sort out their own direction. And it's that that generates the enormous efficiency and constant change in the society. And it's not easy because of the constant change. You never, you never know what the next day is going to bring. Yeah, yeah, the moving target theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what keeps me up. Well, uh, uh, that's what flabbergasts me about the early morning. Uh, the coffee is the only thing for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, well but, you know, I don't, I don't like some of the changes that I have to deal with. You know, the constant changes in computer systems. I'm at war with the techies at NYU. They're always changing the software. I have to spend half my life learning new computer routines. I hate that. Um, my wife says I'm, I'm a technophobe. You know, I should accept it. Well... <laughs> I don't really like it, but I have to accept it. Yeah, for me, it's the techie part of be, the behind-the-scenes part of this radio station. Well, yeah. It drives me crazy. i got to learn all this radio audio stuff, and I go, bring me the tech. I don't want to be told well, anything I, anymore. I, I think yeah. that J Japan is the outlier, but I think it comes down a lot to 
uh, religion, and in particular, Protestant Christianity. Max Weber is one of my favorite yeah. authors, and he, he studied not only the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, but he studied world religions generally. And he said three points. First, Western religion confronts the world. South Asian religion withdraws from the world. Yes. E- East Asian religion seeks harmony with the world. That's basically right. That That is exactly what Weber argued. Now, some, some think that he overstated parts of his argument. But the basic idea, though, is in Weber is not actually anything specific to religion. It's rather an attitude of, of rational mastery, that right. the Western mind is distinctive in that we impose order by a mental process on the things we deal with in the outside world. We figure out how to theorize what's going on. We seek understanding that's theoretical uh, rather than just empirical, and we figure out ways to improve. And it, the, the, the way to do that, the, the temperament that's willing to do that, is the uniquely Western thing. And there's really no other culture that has found a willingness to do that, where the individual takes on board, internalizes the complexities and difficulties and challenges that you face. All right. And then you go forward and seek change. All right. So, Lawrence, let me ask you, will yeah. any member of the faculty at NYU be seen having lunch with you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not a complete pry. My right. main problem in this university is not PC. It isn't that people disagree with my views, although they probably do. It's rather that my department is dominated by technicians who are interested only in methodology and mm-hmm. who pursue very narrow, often quantitative researches, which are um, really not very interesting and not very important. That's my yeah. own view. Yeah, they know they're, more and more. capable people, but they're not, they're not really involved in PC issues. They know more uh, and more about I'm less and less. Extreme, obviously. I've, I've written a very high-level, very theoretical book here. Yep. Yeah, so um, you you started to go into the realm of the world of attorneys. You know, they know a whole lot about nothing, just across a whole lot yes. of problems for we, everyone. Yes. We know more and more <laughs> about less and less. Yeah, I'm, you know, the, the normal knock on this radio program is that Ed's an attorney, and when he speaks to other attorneys, they all sound really important, and then here comes no, the, no, the no. layman capitalist and says, wait a minute, you guys are lying, aren't you? <laughs> Aren't you guys like just fooling us, just creating laws that only you guys understand no. so that we have to hire you to but, understand But them? actually, a lot of the legal work is now being taken over by artificial intelligence. Yeah, which, which, is, a, which is an artificial attorney somewhere. There you go. It's, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of the forms are digitalized, so uh, the legal profession is under real real threat. At the, the very top end is doing fine. Because, and I'm so happy well, about that. Well, there you go. You have, your son is a lawyer. I just and, can pull out the, I just can pull the, the, it, the it, plug on the machine and it, it all goes haywire. It's like a bell curve. The, the top of the profession where you're selling uh, really an insurance policy for the corporation because then the general counsel can say, well, I, I, did, I hired XYZ. I didn't go wrong. And then the bottom end, which is legal zoom and making the legal services available to more people are both thriving. But the middle is uh, falling apart. In many yes, uh, uh, it's duly noted that my nonprofit application that was very hard to get from the uh, nonprofit division of the Internal oh, Revenue mean, was on LegalZoom. You How mean about five hundred one c three status for the station? Yeah, they found yeah. out I was a Tea Partier, so they wouldn't give me um, the, the approval. Oh, Lois Lerner came after you. Yeah, well, uh, she has another name, and her name was a little bit more mumble jumble okay. than that. No, I but mean, Lawrence, let me give you. I don't. We don't. We often talk about current politics, but. Isn't America kind of at a 
at a crossroads here with the, with all the corruption that we've seen with the prior administration and the fake coup that's uh, been mounted, and somebody like Hillary Clinton with her homebrew server, which is clearly in violation yeah. of the law. Aren't we at a crossroads? Aren't we going third I, world? I don't, I don't think we're at a crossroads in any... I, I, the two problems that I would have mentioned is serious, which we haven't even talked about. One is the budget problem. Yep. We are in in the red at, at a national level. The national budget is almost a trillion dollars in, in the red every year. This is not sustainable. I worry about a financial crash. The other thing that I think is serious is the development of identity politics where immigrants, poor people, uh, various other outgroups have been celebrated by the left and taken up as their symbols. And uh, the, the demands that are being made on behalf of these groups are quite extreme. And it isn't actually contrary to an individual's culture to make demands on government. That's quite orthodox. But not to the point where the groups involved are presented as completely helpless and without any responsibility for themselves. That is contrary to an individual's culture. That's what the left is now doing. And it's driven, I think, mostly by the fact that the groups they're talking about mostly do come from the non-Western world. So these are groups that assign power to the environment rather than themselves. They think of themselves as passive products of outside forces, and it's that which the advocates are saying when they make demands for them. I see that as a threat to our politics. You Absolutely. Really have a civilized politics when groups come in with extreme demands and furthermore claim to be helpless, such that all responsibility for their problems passes to the, the wider society. So there's this paradox where they're making demands on the very people who they accuse of all their problems. And, and that's contradictory. And here's, I'll take that step a little further. Uh, we see a political party who understands that there's an unanswerable grievance in society and they drive down the birth rate of the very social class of people they need to fund their welfare programs into the future with abortion and divorce. And they, they make it so easy for, for male and female to separate from themselves after one child. A divorced woman, single mother woman, chances are won't have the second child. And we need more. We need three children per fertile woman to sustain a society. 2.1. Uh, well, 2.1. That, that, that is true. That the family, the decline of the family is partly due to the problems of the non-Western groups. They have the highest rates of female-headedness. Right. The uh, native-born groups that are, especially those from European backgrounds, are doing better for them. Maybe 30% of children are born out of wedlock, whereas for blacks it's over 70%, for Hispanics over 50%. Uh, some groups, 65%. I mean, it's huge. The total breakdown of marriage. That is indeed very serious. Uh, I don't have a complete solution, uh, but I do think it's something we're going to have to pay attention to. And the ultimate solution is going to be to bring that matter under the control of the moralism of the culture, where we basically say certain extremes of irresponsibility in the family are not going to be tolerated, period. We don't think. Yeah, but we're also not quantifying the exponential reproductive nature or number of the 54 million that were aborted, how many children would they have produced had they been born? But I go back to uh, evangelical Protestant See how that conversation dies? As soon as I name the 54, everybody goes, three men, four men can't answer that one. But I I go back to the cultural roots, which are Christianity, evangelical, Protestant. And I think the Roman Catholic Church did a great job for the first 1,500 years 
But I think it's they're time now, for them to sit on the sidelines. Well, line. they're now kind of disconnected from their customers and their founder. So I think the future in America and in Brazil and other places is with Christianity. Well, it's the fastest event, growing event, in China yeah. is Protestant. Right. And, and if you look at the, the rebellion in Hong Kong, uh-huh. the official hymn of the rebels is uh, pray, uh, sing hallelujah to the Lord. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. That's it's a, nice. It's a Christian. It may well be, very well be the best hope for cultural change in the yep. Don West, and yep. I certainly endorse that idea. But I don't think it's going to happen quickly, no. and I don't think that America can count upon it. We mostly have to accept a future in which we, as an individualist nation, will be involved in leading a, leading a world in which most people are not like ourselves. Right. And we have to expect accept that. They're not like us. That's not the same as, as occurred in most of the 20th century, when the countries we were leading were mostly from Europe, or in the case of the Soviet Union, where we had a long-term conflict. The Soviet Union was itself mostly Western country. So we're used to, we are, our sense of what we do in the world is based upon leading other countries like ourselves. That's not the case now. The problems we're dealing with are mostly with non-Western countries that are in deep trouble. Yeah, but we're sharing borders with them. Shouldn't we dedicate all our time and leave Europe to defend for itself for now? And, and uh, I, I, I think that's, I go with that up to a certain point, but the problems we have are sufficiently common, and this includes immigration, that we need to have some, we need to collaborate. There, we, there needs to be a common, uh, common front in dealing with the pressures in the non-Western world. That's our overall problem, is the pressures in the non-West. And well, would you would you they're in trouble basically. They need our help and leadership and we have to provide that but at the same time set some limits. Well, I mean, what what would you say as uh since we're down to our last minutes here as a closing statement, what do you what would you say of um China all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but uh, quite quite there in Latin America imposing its will? Doesn't that kind of throw this whole theory off if we don't get off our butts and well, impose not, our will? Not only in Latin America, but China has uh, given an unsolicited, unsolicited offer to build a monorail from Miami to Miami Beach just yesterday. How about that? All right. I, I don't actually, one of the results of my cultural view is that I don't think China is as much a threat as we tend to think. China is not like the Soviet Union. It's not aggressive in the way that the Soviet Union or indeed uh, uh, the Nazis in World War II, they were aggressive. They wanted to take over the world and convert it to their view of things. I don't see China doing that. China is more cautious than that. Their government is in trouble. They have a lot of internal problems. Uh, I think they're likely to settle for dominating Southeast Asia. And uh, the rest of the world is still going to look to Western leadership and especially to the United States. Mm, okay. I'm not so sure I agree with that. I um, I know that the number one export that China has is Chinese people. They export more Chinese than yeah, they export anything else. The Chinese want to get the heck out of there. To, uh, exactly. Yeah. They have a lot of yeah, heck out of there. The Chinese, the Chinese that are coming to America, as I mentioned, they have significant problems fitting into an individualist culture. And their temperament is not to seek leadership and dominance. Quite the contrary. Yeah, there I agree with you. There, yeah. there I agree. When we go back to the premise of individualism... I think we we do have a patent on that. I think Americans. Yeah. I notice it in myself. You know, my father was only. I'm only one one generation removed from my father, so he came in here and he he thanked Fidel every day for coming to power because he said I would have never developed the skills and the acumen that I developed here in the United States simply out of hunger. I mean, he got into the produce business simply because if I filled that produce, at least I'm eating in, in the process. You know, he would could feed his family. 
But that's extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the willingness to do that and bear the risks involved, or my ancestors who came from Britain in the 17th century, to climb on a sailing ship and cross 5,000 miles of ocean and, and go into a, a complete wilderness and build a new society, that is not rational behavior. <laughs> that isn't. Committed behavior. Right. You do that when you're a fanatic. You have a vision and you pursue it. That's the West. That, right. That's the extreme case of the West. you, you got to realize the pilgrims came from the fair city of Leiden, which was yeah. a university town. Uh, yeah. You know, half of the books in the world were printed in Holland, and half of those were printed in Leiden. So it was a real college town, and the, the pilgrims said, to heck with this. We're going I across know. the sea. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. What they did is, is just mind-boggling. And that, that is not normal behavior. Only Westerners do that. Uh, and that's what changes the world. And that's why we're leading the world. And we'll end it on that note. Thank you very much for for the call. I was uh, uh, quite fulfilling. And, well, thank you. And uh, I appreciate it. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna demand that uh, Ed Vidal give me the cliff notes on your book. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks very much. Alrighty, take care. Okay, yep. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah, that was uh, quite quite a treat for those of you where you're listening to WSQF ninety four point five Blink Radio Key Biscayne on the Concrete Conservative Show. And I just got an education. And uh, see, some people are impressed with the Cuban experience. And he was quite knowledgeable <laughs> about it. And I always like to point out that we are that 4%. Of the Cubans, uh, uh, those who are listening to us here in Miami don't realize. We think we're enormous. We're not. We're tiny little. We're, well, the, we're like a good friend of mine told me, hey, man. Hey, Mac. Tell, uh, remember, Cubans are the flea on the, the tail of a stray dog in America. Okay. Well, Hugo, why don't you, you're Venezuelan, why don't you tell us about the Venezuelan experience? Now we see all these Venezuelans coming. Why don't you tell us about What's going to become you, of this? Yeah, what kind of people we are we kinda getting? Because we kind of know the answer. Yeah. We want to see if you're going to disagree or what agree with us. What kind of people are we getting? Well, um, well, first of all, it, I think it's important to point out that uh, Venezuela is known in the growth economic literature as a growth disaster <laughs> prior to Chavez. Right. Even before so it was, it was on a train. Before Chavez, it was a train wreck. The average growth rate between 1960 or 1959 and 1998 is negative. Yeah. Meaning that on average, over those years, population grew at a higher rate than GDP. Than GDP. So, so that's good. So, that's the same for all the Latin American countries. Well, no, no, no. Let me put. This Who was in, the exception? No, there? no. Let me put this in perspective. Uh, with good data, there's 16 growth disasters over the period that I mentioned. Of those 16 countries, 14 are from the sub-Saharan Africa. Two are Latin Americans. One is Nicaragua, who had a civil war, right. and the other one is Venezuela, who had no civil war. And they had all that petroleum. A lot of oil, and so prices the corruption, went through the roof. So and the so corruption on. was just grotesque. Well, um, maybe that, but also very ill-conceived policies. Uh, let's put it this way: Venezuela was really a growth miracle from 1920 to 1957, 58. When they found oil in Maracaibo. They, they found oil in Maracaibo. They brought in international oil companies to right. exploit the Texas, oil. Louisiana, British. British, that's right, British, and then and, and American. Right. And um, 
Well, they uh, nationalized that, well, their oil and said, hold it on. That's they, why they play okay. baseball. They're so, the only so, South American country that plays baseball that's because right. of all the Texas and Louisiana. Because of all the American influence. Right. So, yeah, in 1975, we decided to nationalize Boom, there goes the, the, downfall. the oil industry, which was basically the only check and balance that the government had because they were, from the very beginning, disseminating... Uh, I'm sorry, we were destroying, dissipating the capitalist... Say, Mojo. Well, the, the, the capitalist remnants or, you know, the, the whatever we could say we could call capitalism had been, was being destroyed with the socialist presidents that started with Romulo Betancourt in 1957. Okay. So let me, let me, let me, let me. So he's, he nationalized by the Well, well no, no, no. It went like this. Well, for, let's see, one of the, some of the things that Betancourt did, you know, for example, uh, no new oil concessions for the, uh, the, the company. So why would they look for oil if they, they would not be able to exploit it? He founded Cordi Plan, which is a central planning agency a la Soviet Union. Then um, he limited European immigration, which was doing a lot of well to right, the country, right, right, right. a lot of good to the country. Then he tripled... Why would he limit European... Uh, he didn't well, all those white folks, especially Jewish uh, refugees from Europe. Unbelievable. We, we, we got that a, is brain. We, we got a lot of that, and they helped us a lot. But, of course. But, 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 when but, you have but, indigenous populations, yeah, you need white folks. A lot, a lot of, a lot of that. A lot Refugees of that. from Europe, yeah. yeah. I mean, indigenous, I, 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 mean, I mean, we're brown people, okay? I will speak like no, a brown. Yeah, you yeah. are, yeah. But I'm more uh, Muslim from uh, Catalonia and Barcelona than I am indigenous, indigenous. Yeah. But the true success, I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me to say this. I wish I would have. Remember to say this when Lawrence was on here, but really the true, the true success of the United States, as, uh, as well as being lunatic and coming over here to begin with, <laughs> on, on on ships like yeah, he said, ships, yeah. and the personal responsibility. But the, the the giant step forward was the complete restoration of the Native Indian and not having an indigenous population to contend with on a regular basis, keeping their morals and their mores and their institutions. Andrew Jackson moving them out. Yes. Yeah. And well, guess what? Spanish conquest did not do that in Latin America. The they they made it there. with them and reproduced with the them and gave there. them diseases. And uh, But indigenous population uh, 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 is like an anchor around the, the waist of Latin America because the indigenous people... Lawrence said, "Will not change. They're no, they're collectivists. They're very fatalistic. Yes, yes, they they don't have that curiosity and yeah. that wonder to go and, and kick ass. Those who do come to the United States and we go to get education here. Yeah, and then they just do it the hard way. Well, let me let me. I mean, in, in a in a sense, make your point. Notice that all the places where the Brits settled, mm -hmm. not colonized, but where they settled." Those those places prospered, and those are the United States, Canada, Australia, Hong Kong. Aus Hong wait, wait, <laughs> Australia and uh, New Zealand. Right. I'm talking from the colonies. Yes, settled. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, Hong Kong is a growth miracle, and basically because it was a, a British protectorate, right. then I think it was Copper White 
the British consul who really changed the rules of the game. And this is something that I yeah, think they, Lawrence didn't pay a lot much they, attention to. They have to English it. law in Hong Kong. They and have common law. Right. They have common law in Hong Kong. Yes. And as well in Singapore. So that's one of the rules or the no, rule? That, that, well, that the rule, law is rule, of law. Law, rule of law. And, and, yeah. and, well, you know, but rule of law in a context of common law. Right. Because you can have rule of law in civil in right. civil law, law countries. Civil law countries, yes. yeah. Yes. So, so, in other words, innocent before proven guilty, yes. no, no, jury no of your peers, and con respect well, for property, contracts, independent judges, all that. Right. Right. Okay, so that's what you guys are that's, calling common law. Yes, well, well, from England. Well, yeah. Yeah, well the, the common law, the characteristic, you will correct me, is basically that it allows for precedent. It always right. looks to the past, right. yeah. and the custom, say, becomes law. Right, commercial In civil custom, law, yeah. you need to have a congressional approval for it to be a law. Yeah. And under yeah. common law, everything is permitted unless it's prohibited. Right. In civil law, it, you, it has to be expressly permitted. Right. By the law. Yeah, which is uh, so stigmatization and not stale. Common law is better for economic development and political liberty. Yeah, because we Absolutely. couldn't even get right. the word email no. okay, so became me, email because of the use of the no, word, let, but it wasn't a word. Let me ask word. you a question. What about uh, South Africa? That was conquered by the British on top of the Dutch, Cape Town, Cape Province especially. Yeah, but, but it wasn't the case that the British population right, and European populate. population dominated, right, right, the, right, 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 you know, right, permeated right, the whole right, country. Right, right, right. And that's what happened here. So, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of British colonies that did not prosper. They basically implanted extractive institutions. Mm -hmm. and, and Well, like you would say... That, uh, well, like, like France did the same thing. Spain did the same thing. Now, what I think is that even if the Spanish had come to Latin America and some countries and say massively, densely populated the country, it's very unlikely that that country would have prospered. Right. Why? Because Spain you know, hasn't prospered. There you go. I it, mean, only yeah. lately. I think the, only a, big, lately. Yeah, a big difference is Protestant, That's a good point. Protestant yeah. Christianity is much more individualistic. It places you so face to face. So we're back to Roman Catholicism. Absolutely. It's a, it's a millstone around Europeans. Uh, pro I, I, I grew up Catholic. I went to a Jesuit high school, rebelled against the Jesuits because they were preaching liberation me, theology. Me three, the three of us. Liber well, they were preaching liberation theology. I got theology. screwed by the Jesuits. I went, I went, they demoralized me intellectually. I went to college. I read, you know, University of Chicago has a great books program. I read Luther. I read Mark, Max Weber. I read Calvin. And I said, I'm a Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a Protestant. And that's where we've been uh, ever since. But let me, let me, let me, regarding that, you know, uh, I mean, it's important that history is not destiny and it's mm. very contingent. Okay. So the fact that in 1585, mm -hmm. it was the... The, the Spanish tried to conquer, it was a famous Armada, Armada. Yes, they yes, tried yes. to conquer England, England and right. they couldn't, why? Because of, of, a, of a torment, right, uh, weather, uh, yes. weather and then that made a big difference and, and, and that allowed uh, the British, England specifically, to win. If Spain had won, if Spain had oh, conquered England, I mean, we wouldn't have what we have now. They would have ruined London, which they would is a big commercial everything, city. Right. Everything, yes, yes, and yes. the common law, yeah, rule of law, we would not have had the glorious revolution right, in six, right, the greatest right, revolution on right, earth, right, you know? Right, right, right. 
So, uh, yeah, if you look so, back at Spain, so there is a certain providence for our there existence, is like a certain providence to that. Absolutely. That's right, that's right. So, even though they were already separated from the Catholic Church because this was past Henry VIII, well, mm -hmm. actually, Elizabeth was the, the right. latest tutor, the right. last tutor. Yes, yes. well, uh, I mean, they won, thank God, they won, and right. it wasn't, you know, with the Catholics. If, if you look at Spain in that period, first of all, the, the king. Uh, was going uh, bankrupt every five or ten years. The governments were not paying their debts, and it was uh, commerce was being stifled. It was the church and the military that were running the country. And if you look at his castle, instead of having, you know, if I had been uh, F King Felipe, I would have uh, merged with Portugal and made my capital city Lisbon, which is a commercial city, yeah. like London. But yeah. no, he built Escorial in the middle of yeah. Spain, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's a totally non-commercial place. Yeah. Madrid is a totally artificial city. Oh, wow. Completely built from the 1500s. Well, built out of, uh, out of fear. Well, it's a military control. It's, a, uh, it's in the yeah. middle of the country for military control by a church that did not tolerate dissent. And it, it explains why Barcelona became well, that, a, such a power of Spain, because they were a port city yeah. with yes. its back to the sea. They had but, been but, that, yeah. But let me tell you the difference between... What happened, I think what you're mentioning is basically the Atlantic trade. Yes. And it was that England also participated in the Atlantic trade, but there's a major difference between England and Spain and actually the rest. And it's that who benefited from the Atlantic trade in England? Both sides. The people. Oh, the people. Who benefited in Spain and in Portugal? The bureaucrats. The crown. The that crown. made a big difference. Well, the crown. That, that makes... That make difference. Well, right, so, it's every difference. So, so, that is uh, the difference. I mean, of course. So, let of me, course. You're because right. basically, as a result of the people benefiting... Yeah, the ships, actually, all the ships rise. they were becoming rich, and the crown was becoming poor. And in fact... Uh, and it was the whole opposite in Spain. Well, the individualistic countries had stronger governments. Right. Because they could collect taxes because the people were making money. Let me give you an example okay. of that that comes to today. Uh -huh. In Mexico, the government owns the mineral resources, the in, subsoil. So in Venezuela? And yeah. So in Venezuela. Yeah. And that comes from Spain. The crown owned uh, all that. Absolutely. In Texas, right across the river, same geology... The individual owns the subsoil. That's, That's why right. we have fracking. Right. That's yeah, why, why we, we have fracking. Because the people own it. Because that, that's right. So you're fracking. All fracking is in private land. Absolutely. All of it. It's all it's a fracking is a pan the ass. There's mud, there's you know, water going up and down, there's trucks running over your lawn. Horizontal and some, and, drilling, horizontal right, drilling. Horizontal, and some liberals saying it's all gonna cave in one day. No, baloney. <laughs> but if it's if you're getting some money out of it, you say, Okay, go ahead, let's frack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Texas and Mexico, look at it. So then, as a result of that, and actually it all started with the signing of the Magna Carta, right. then the Brits were capable of impoverishing the crown, and then right. as a result of that, then uh, King William in 1688 right. said... William and Mary, right. He said, I'm king, but I'm king because the parliament right. makes me a king. King and parliament. Rule of law. Together, right. The guy subjected to the law. And Whereas in continental Europe, you know, you had Louis XVI. I, I am the they law. They were the law. Right. That's I am right. the law. The, the <laughs> c'est moi. Right, right. That was uh, Absolutely. Louis, well, Louis, that, Louis, that revolution which made the king in parliament, allowed for uh, more taxation. Uh, it allowed for the Bank of England to establish a good credit for the government. 
So then they could afford a bigger military. Right. And they had all these ships. Right. From and what did, but what did William get out of it? Just didn't have he, to work. He got a job. <laughs> he got a job. <laughs> he got they a job. brought him from Holland. Yeah, he, he, got, he went from Holland and, to and, England. And, and then, you know what? What the parliament basically did was to depose James II, who right. was a steward. And, and the, the stewards had Catholic yes. leanings, yes. absolutist. Yes. They didn't, they didn't yes. understand he, what was going on. Right, you know? right, right. So that was the thing. Now, from 1714, when England started uh, becoming involved in European power more closely, yeah. and uh, it, that was a time when the, the king of Spain, even I'm sorry, the, uh, of France, put his cousin on the throne in Spain. So they were together against England. From that time until the end of the Napoleonic Wars, England won every naval battle against France or France and Spain in that hundred years, including Trafalgar, which was a disaster for the Spanish-French fleets, and with one exception, the Battle of the Chesapeake, where America got its independence. <laughs> funded by a bunch of Cubans. Right, funded by Cuban merchants with uh, uh, Mexican silver. He's learning. I've been the, saying this since we started the show. French ships. Mexican Cubans silver funded. on the French ships sank the ships so that the British shot over them yeah. and the French were able to hit back. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. There was so much gold on 38 Not ships. Gold, silver, silver. Well, silver ain't gold, okay? Yeah. Tell me there wasn't gold in the Mexican Half of the freaking Mayans and Incas had gold, okay? You know, why disappear the gold, for Christ? I yeah. never understood that. And on the back of the Ocho Reales uh, coin, yeah. you see the dollar sign that became the American dollar sign right. on accounting ledgers because right. you wanted to be paid in Ocho Real de España after this war. After the because war, yeah. the, the, the yeah. Americans, once they got their country, they still had to have an yeah. economy post-war. Well, right? Hamilton gets a lot of credit for that. For yes, establishing but it's erased. Credit. Only this show talks about the Cubans' contribution to Yorktown. <laughs> <laughs> Only this show in this entire country. Absolutely. We've had some really intelligent people here Blown away by this yeah. little hokey yeah. pokey yeah, yeah, talking yeah, yeah, yeah. about it. Adam, oh, I didn't know that. Adam oh, Levinson, I didn't know that. Adam Levinson calls in at seven for an hour of statues and stories, and he knows all about this. And I think uh, that was the one. He didn't know about that. He did not know about that. So Adam, I know good. you're listening. You're you're waiting. You're waiting hope, in your car to call. Yeah. But yes. you know what? What I think that uh, a major lesson to be learned uh, out of history mm -hmm. and actually what happens currently is that for democracy to exist, it has to be that the government lives of the people. When the right, people doesn't have its own source live of, income. of the government. Oh, yeah, forget oh, it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, it collapses. And that's Venezuela. Yeah, and that's Argentina, and that's too, let me tell well, you. Well, not, not as much, but, 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 yeah, Venezuela, but, but yeah. Venezuela, Mexico, basically, you capture know. Capture the state. The, the, captured by the state. So yeah. then, you, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why. Why do we have to keep that, on teaching it if it's so damn obvious? It, well, the people, people fall yeah, right back into that every time. Well, they because, because the interest, the personal yeah. interest created. So right. they basically, you know, they manage their way in order to look at, look at Mr. Guaido. Oh, yeah. He's a socialist. Yes. Of course he's a yes. socialist. Well, I told you, in okay. Venezuela, the 1770, fight... 1770, what do you see there? Yeah. Yep. In Venezuela, That's the, the fight yes. is between socialists and communists. See, the That's Spanish, right. The That's Spanish right. crown, the, the new world, the old world, and then the the columns. And this one, this coin, yeah. is 1775. 1737. 37. 30, yeah. 37. So I keep on showing these pictures because <laughs> there it is. <laughs> It's the dollar sign. The yeah. dollar sign. The and dollar sign. No, no. It was minted in Peru. 
Mexico, Mexico right? right. But, but, uh, but houses are stored in the banks yeah. of Cuba. Yeah. So when Bernardo Galvez, 37 years old, governor, decides decides to seal of off the Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico, not only does he save America from being back-ended by the British, because uh-huh. if they get into the Mississippi River, it's over for George. Yeah. George is in, still in underwear right now asking for food, okay? He seals it in the Battle of Pensacola, Battle of Baton Rouge, and the Battle of New Orleans. But where he where he really locks in was Galveston, Galveston, Texas, mm-hmm. because that's, that's named the, after him today. It's named after him, but it's the route of the gunpowder. It was the route that least stormy seas mm-hmm. to preserve the dryness of the gunpowder. How else do you fire the cannonballs without the gunpowder? And that's the part of war that nobody talks about. Who in the hell supplies the gunpowder? And in this case, Locoichi. <laughs> you know? They were Spanish then. Yeah, yeah. it was Spanish yeah. then, but we don't leave yeah. we leave that part out of the story. <laughs> and and Bernardo, uh, you know what he does? After the war, he signs the Treaty of Paris. He sits next to George Washington in the first Fourth of July parade. You know what he does after all this? Now he's like forty something. He builds the great Catholic Cathedral of Mexico City. With his own money. He built it on the ruins of the Templo Mayor of the Aztecs. Can you believe that? And then he dies of a bizarre disease. Amazing. At the age of 40-something. Drinking tequila, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll rot your guts. Yeah, but, it's, it's one of those things where you wonder, just like you said about if it wasn't for the storms, a British doesn't win, there is oh, no Magna Carta. I mean, no, the whole world changes. No, 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 no. Well, Magna Carta, yeah, but but no, uh, you know, no glorious revolution right, right, right. And, and no parliamentary democracy. You know, we, we really owe m- many major pillars of Western civilization to England, and those are mm-hmm. rule of law, yep. industrial, um, parliamentary democracy, and Industrial Revolution, Industrial Revolution yep, yep, yep. which basically permitted humanity to escape poverty. Because yep. prior to the Industrial yeah, agriculture Revolution, only. we were all poor. We were yeah, all yeah. poor. If you see the and that's of, why, well, and let, yeah. me, let, me, let me connect with this, and that's why you see that, say, the Catholic Church and even most Jewish are very redistributionist. Mm-hmm. Because basically, Jesus lived in, of course, during the Malthusian era, and the only way to help the poor was through redistribution. And if you look right. at the Torah, they have a, a lot of dispositions yeah, right. there Years of, of Holy Jubilee, Year, right. Jubilee, yeah. and all those things which were redistribution. That's a good point, yeah. But now, you know, we can make we, more. We're gone. I mean, we're over that, you know? And that's what they still, the hierarchy of the church still yes. doesn't want to understand that the best way to help the poor is through economic growth. Right. You know? And, and, and uh, Pope Francis and, uh, doesn't Oh, my God. Oh, oh, yeah. my God. He talks about, he, he it's always, you know, um, He's a peronista. Very despicable, you know, about markets yeah, and yeah, also, yeah, yeah. I mean, which is another problem. But, he is a, but he's an engineer by, by no, trade, no. isn't he? He's a math teacher, but he's no, not an no. economist. No, he's no, not no, an engineer? No, no. no he's I a thought he was. Teacher. Math teacher. The, the, um, Gee, so he knows math but doesn't understand economics. No, he does not. <laughs> Man, and he gets his money for free, too. He's like uh, the Fed. 
he doesn't understand well economics. remember the mathematicians existed well way before the creation of, of economics right. with adam smith back in 1776 you know so and without math, math already existed yeah you, you can count uh, prior, prior branches you can count seeds you know yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so now we're so now what based on the, the conversations we've had we've had three basic conversations because i know the vidal thinks he his conversation was one in itself okay then you had Lawrence's conversation. We had your conversation. But only one of us tried to take us forward. Okay, so what's that? Go ahead. So, yeah. since I wrote a book about reinventing the United States by affect, not effect, I'm taking you smarty pants ideas, and I'm throwing it into this cocktail I've created that I believe, and I believe this wholeheartedly, that in the absence of really, really awesome, completely crazy ideas among stale people, the bad idea becomes law because the good idea is called crazy. And, we, and I'm really happy to hear that Lawrence said that we were all crazy in order to establish a new world. A new world. Yeah. Okay, so now I know I'm on to something and I have to propose these ideas which I propose to him. I do know that for a fact the Chinese are moving into the Port of Mariel, 128 square mile well, industrial park. They made an offer in Miami. Miami Beach to Miami uh, monorail. Um, the only thing that really can save America's southern states is for a uh, an explosion of industrial revolution in post Castro's Cuba, okay, where Americans come back and start making cars there, TVs there, da 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 da. Because the Chinese are coming, and they don't want to lose the trade because <laughs> of the problems that he said that they had, internal government problems. But well, what better way to compete with the United States, give them what they want, and still keep the business, is to manufacture in Cuba. And they already did so in ZEDM. Uh, I forgot the Spanish acronym for that. Zona uh, C-E-D-M. Industrial. Uh, it has to start with an E. Z-E-D-M. Uh, uh, Mercantil, something. Zona. It's a Zona. Yeah. Que Raul opened the door for them. Uh uh, Fidel didn't really have much to say about it. Ya le estaba ya choncho. But they've extended the girth, all the break, all the break of Brazil extended the girth. Bachelet, you can imagine, she went in there and... Ugh, She's a she, commie. She, she cut every ribbon there was to cut. To, um, and they gave this an incredible port with no businesses in it. But enough, about 20-something businesses, Nestle's there. Some other big uh, European firms have at least established, put a logo outside. But if the Chinese already, through a Singapore holding company, own the Gulf entrance to the Panama Canal and the Pacific <coughs> entrance, isn't that sign enough that they're going to control the Panama Canal? Yeah. So if they do already doing that, and God forbid they cut through Lake Nicaragua, that other Chinaman, another, yeah. another Chinaman is trying to cut through there, that would be their exclusive route to Mariel to manufacture, and they'll cut 5,200 nautical miles to 1,800 to the port of New Orleans from Mariel, port of Tampa from Mariel, port of Charlton, uh, 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 Charleston, right past Miami. Miami gets cut out entirely of this <clears> equation, <throat> and the rest is Galveston. So I'm proposing. Uh, it's behind you there in a the big picture. And I gave, it, I gave it to everybody I can possibly give it to for us to compete with, uh, with Mariel with Gitmo Free Zone, which is our 40... 43 square miles. If that one's 128, ours is 43, theirs is the second deepest port, Guantanamo's is the deepest port, and we have the legal right to eminent domain it because 
Cuba cannot control its waterborne diseases. Uh, uh, Zika, cholera, and dengue. The three mm -hmm. of them are waterborne. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. You eminent domain the base. You have to go to court. Some U.S. district court has got to say so all the way to the Supreme Court and hand the entire base over to veterans of war to build a home, two homes, one for an invalid, one for a, themselves. The schools are already there. You just need to expand them. The universities are already there. Invite other universities to come and create GitmoFreeZone.us. And you mm -hmm. go to the website, you can see how I play it out to compete with Mariel. Then... To compete with the Panama Canal, the other side of the equation is the Great Wall of Will, which is to to convince Trump that, hey, your wall is a stupid idea, but if I put a train on top of it and I move cargo from San Diego to Brownsville, no Mexican will dig under it, no Mexican will, will climb over it, and MS-13 or MS-19. Yeah, Salvadorian, yeah. Yeah, all these fools will now be uh, have no economic power because the entry features will be underneath this train, and it'll be basically not an MRI because it's magnetic, but scan, digital scan, like an X-ray. And since there's over 20 trains going back and forth, there's a natural pipeline in it, and it becomes an industrial infrastructure equal to the finishing of the Panama Canal in the turn of this century or the building of the Hoover Dam in the middle of a depression. Sounds crazy, right? No. Well, if you don't propose it, we're going to get screwed. It's the most important idea in this country right now, and it's coming right out of WSQF Blink Radio. So have, have you presented To Kellyanne Conway, to, to uh -huh. Ted Cruz personally. Oh, and what do they and say? And they told me, they, told, they gave it to Trump, and uh -huh. Pence was standing on his head. This is all hearsay, so you guys are, don't, don't crash your cars out there, you know, in traffic, but... Anybody who has contact with Trump, ask them, have you been proposed, I want to know if it's true, the Great Wall of Will. Go to the website and see it. I believe it's the most important idea in this country's, in this country right now. I really do. And I built this whole radio station just to be able to say it. That's how lunatic I am. <laughs> and I can't build a train. Individualistic you are. Uh, individualistic I am. <laughs> okay? But... Natural gas pipeline, it can be connected to the Keystone Pipeline so it can move petroleum too once you build it. Uh -huh. it. It would cost around $560 billion, and you and I get to own it on the stock exchange under the symbol GWW, Great Wall of Will. Uh -huh. Okay. When I was working for the Ted Cruz campaign, that's all I talked about. Everybody knew me as the wall guy, the train, the wall, the wall, and the train. And everybody said, and I told the senator flat out, you're going to lose, my friend. You don't have a better wall than Trump. And he was looking at me like, face it, my friend, you're going to lose. And there's a video of me hugging him saying, God has forsaken us. He, he told me that he said, uh, now I see why, why my father left Cuba with nuts like this over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> incredible. Really incredible. I'm sure they thought it was uh, my father was nuts when he bought a 1948 Mercury, smashed yeah. the window, tore out the, the trunk, and turned it into a pickup truck because it was just this huge car. And he says, well, either I make it at this, but I'm eating the whole time, so you know, I can be able to feed my family even if I go broke. This idea competes with the Panama Canal, and it completely changes the distribution routes of the United States, plus if it obligates the United States to force all shipping to the Port of San Diego. Yeah. which is a massive naval facility, by the way. 
And if you force mm-hmm. all the traffic there, the benefit is you distribute into the United States within 10 hours, all the way across it, because a natural gas-powered freight train can move cargo from point to point in 10 hours that it takes you 14 days in the Panama Canal. And let me ask you something. Uh, would this also be helpful for the economies of Latin America? Well, guess what? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. So I just want to uh, build on that. You were mentioning about, say, dollarization. Yes. You know, I've always yeah. been in favor of, of that type of idea. But, but all the countries, nobody, well, can, well, there can't be an okay. exception because then the corruption starts again. But like we, what, but, like you but, mentioned but, in Argentina. But, but here, here's the point that we know that the collectivistic culture, although I'm not saying that it's socialist, but people are very prone to socialism once they are mm-hmm. collectivistic. That's called they're socialists. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but but it's just that Lawrence was you know distinguishing and rightfully yeah, so yeah. you know that one thing is the culture another thing is you know the, the system yeah. but of course a characteristic of collectivist culture is that you always want to blend in the group you don't want to challenge authority you really don't want to be different from the group and and you don't want to be ruled by Info, by by rules that are equal for everybody, you know, you really want to do everything through friendship, you know, and you know, mm-hmm. collectivism. And collectivism, collectivism. Well, really, you Col- you only do business with your friends. For example, so Anglo-American law allows you to do business with, with strangers, with everybody, right. yeah. with everybody. So then, so then, the thing is that if we, the the culture can be changed, and I give you a prime example. When Americans had the, 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 the canal zone in Panama, taxi drivers that were driving very recklessly in Panama, as soon as they entered the canal zone, they were excellent drivers. As soon as they got out of they the had, canal they zone, they went back to the... Military police in the zone. Cultural change. Yeah. I mean, your habits are, are automatically changed. Why? Because you face different incentives. So culture can be changed. And the way to change it is to change the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Just like you know, the rules are different in the in the in the canal zone as opposed to uh, in in Panama, in Panama City. I mean, the rest of Panama. So, going back to your point, if we want to change, we want to change the collectivist culture of Latin America. We have to start by changing what's most easily. To, to, Their modify, currency. to modify. So, okay, so that's part of the rules. So but you can't back so, off after so, that. There so has to be penalties for so, going back to uh, your currency. Well, absolutely. Well, okay. but So but, that you can't do what Argentina but, but, did. No, no, okay. But, but, but Argentina, and, and let me also clarify that, Argentina never fully dollarized. Right, they they always yeah. had the peso. and right. So what's board. the signal right. that it's sending to you? Competing. That, that, that no, the signal is that you know what? If I get in trouble, I go back to the right, peso. which they did, and therefore it, it really didn't generate a lot of confidence right. in the new system. Right. They had to fully dollarize for Absolutely. the system to change, like Ecuador for the is system, today. like Ecuador and like Panama is, or Peru is a very good example where they do have a local currency, but they allow the dollar and the euro to also circulate. So basically, you have competition. To the to the mm-hmm. local currency. So people actually have to do the math. That, well, yeah, they do. They, they do, do and they they very good they're at very it. Very sophisticated. And they're, that's right. Yeah. That, when, when Brazil had all that hyperinflation, the most efficient check clearing systems in the world were in Brazil. 
Oh, well, elaborate on that one. Because there was so much inflation, you had to get your money to the bank right away. It would lose value by the time you got it. So you wanted to, to cash your checks or whatever as fast as possible. So they developed the most efficient banking systems in the world. Wow. So... It doesn't so, apply in Venezuela. Okay, no, no. Well, I think... I think. No, I want to change the subject. Continue, so, continue so, your thought. So the thing is that capitalism is an individualistic system that in a very short time generates fruits, fruits in terms of raising the standard of living of the people. So you have then a, a, a almost you know, immediate benefit, which is that your well-being, your material well-being is improving. And then you start to, say, become exposed to individualistic rules through mechanisms that actually benefit the people personally. But you also have to be losing something in the in the transition. You got to feel the pain of staying the way okay. you are. Well, no, well, the pain is that... that that oh. now maybe you have to work more, but you see the benefits of working more, and you get to keep more of those benefits, okay? So, so then, once people start then operating in, in that system, then they start seeing that the cultural rules that they have in this new system, they don't work as well. So then, that's when the cultural change starts. Let me tell you, there are many examples, many uh, papers that document how also culture can be changed and basically is through economic Incentives? changes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, I mean well, uh, there's no. a plethora. So what I'm saying is that that of course you know we have a major problem collectivistic culture but to the extent that we are able to implement mm -hmm. a market economy in latin america and people start seeing the benefits then they're going to say i don't want to go back and then living in that system most likely is going to lead to a cultural change which i think is the case of japan which i think eventually south korea is mm -hmm. also going to go to more individualism and so on Okay, well, that's but, you're that, that, but you're cheating your argument because you're okay. merely gravitating to those countries that already, uh, I'm talking about because, here, because Latin that, America. Because that's the example that we have. That's I have a serious that, fear that, of my that, children being bombarded okay. by a bunch of Latin Americans crushing this, this so United I. States. So do I. Yep. So do I. Because I and, see the manners already. So I already I. see the People are fighting in Walt Disney, so, 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 a place where you used to go to find happiness yeah, and joy. Yeah. People are punching themselves in Walt Disney. Come on, how in the hell do you manage to yeah. fight in Walt Disney? Yeah, Lawrence, but that's why. That's why. Well, look, I got to be Lawrence for a I'm, moment. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm Manuel. Sorry, Manuel, I'm sorry, Manuel. I'm, I'm Mac. Sorry. No, I'm sorry, Manuel. We just want to say that that's why Lawrence was saying that we have to limit that immigration. Yeah. We got to limit it. Now, the most effective way to limit that immigration is to create prosperity in Over those there, countries. but he didn't do that. He didn't suggest he didn't, that. I know he didn't say that, but I am saying it. Yeah, no, you're and right. I, and I think how do makes, we do that? And I, think I, believe, it, I believe oh. it's forced dollarization. Well, that's, part, uh, well, of it, that's right. part of it. I mean, the, the monetary system is, is a very important part of, of an economy, but it's not all. Yeah. You know, I you mean, need rule of law. Rule of yeah. law. Uh, you need... Uh, Regulation friendly to businesses, as we've learned here yep, in the United yep. States recently. Low taxes. Uh, 
low levels of taxation, an independent judicial right. system yeah. that fears no one, yeah. and, and therefore, you know, everybody starts seeing the benefits and, of and having... And, you know, some of these objective. countries are going backward. Um, Costa Rica is generally a good country it's for this. However, country, last yeah. year, taking advice from the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, mm -hmm. based in Paris, they raised their capital gains taxes. Amazing. Oh, Can you believe that? Amazing, I amazing. Well, but you, you, know, you know what happens a little bit also uh, is, yeah, is that when you know countries start to emerge out of a collectivist and yep. socialist economy, it's not a straight line, but right. progress. Okay. Look at Chile. Chile is the best mm -hmm. Latin American yes. example. It's the closest example to a growth miracle. Yes. And look at you know what happened to them with the second term of Bachelet. Yeah, she was terrible. But notice that reaction. Yeah, right, but notice right. that reaction. I mean, yeah. she gained, she she left office she with really a is. very low level of popularity. Right. And who won? Piñera. Sebastián right. Piñera again. Right. You know. So, so uh, who was what a pro growth? Guy, so yeah. uh, a pro growth, uh, uh, an individual from the right. But how know? do you? But how do you get rid of that stupid Monroe doctrine? Pestecita of envy towards the United States that's embedded in all Latin American countries. Because I had, we had an Argentine show here. I had uh, someone who's running for president, uh, an economist, I forgot his name. Yeah. He's going to run against Macri. And I'm sitting there, I'm just pressing buttons here. Murphy, Murphy? No, no, no. no. It's not, it, uh, he, had a, he was a very cool guy. I okay. actually thought it was really cool. I had to shut my mouth the whole time because I was very frustrated listening to their. They didn't want to go. They were dancing around the obvious. You have this big elephant in the room, and it's your king, which is the United States of America. That's huge economy that you can only benefit from, but you don't. You you want to fix it yourself, and you can't fix it because you guys are all rigging systems here. Right. Yeah. So I said, wait a second. How are you planning to go where you want to go? Because you're talking all this jam. You got a jelly jar there full of the sweetest things in the world, but you still have Argentines. <laughs> You have Argentinians, okay? That you guys se lo creen que no saben todo. The only way you can leash is for us to print your money, period. And when you run out, you don't get more until your next fiscal year. And you have to give us stuff. And they do have one of the largest grain importers of the world in Bungie. Bungie's Argentine company. It's number two next to Cargill. Yeah, well, all of Argentina is a big farm. It's yeah. A, yeah. Well, guess what? You know how they made their money? Not here, in the United States. They yeah. didn't make it in Argentina. Why? Because they, they sell it. Okay, but well, wait a second. This is what they do. Plus. This is the story of Bungie, and it's a completely Argentine story. And I gave it to them, and they're all looking at me like, oh, how can you, oh, what do you know about Bungie? Well, let me tell you what I know about Bungie. The majority of the corn that was grown in wheat in this country is grown in the shallow, most shallow part of the Mississippi River, which is... Minnesota up, okay? The Argentine said, I'm going to invest my money, since I can't compete with Cargill, and I can't compete with ADM, Arthur Daniels Midland, I, the only way I can compete with them is to do them a favor. I'll take it down from the Canadian border all the way down to the middle of Iowa, where the water is shallow. I'll buy those ships, the shallow-drawn ships, and I'll move the grain and the corn midway to the Mississippi, let ADM pay me for it to continue the rest out. Then, when I have enough jack, I will now meet halfway from the north and from the south, and I'll take it to Argentina. And then, with that money, I will build what is now today one of the largest grain 
producers in the world in Argentina, but it started up in Mississippi on the vision of of buying into short, shallow right. ship barges yeah. to yeah. hold grain yeah. and do the favor to the big two people. But today, when we extend loans to Argentina and they don't pay, Bungie to the rescue gives it to us in grain. Period. So why can't that apply to Venezuela with oil? Why can't that apply uh, to Bolivia with copper, Chile with copper, and start controlling markets? Of course, no. I understand that the power of uh, of too much of something drives the price down. So I'm aware of the, the very fact that it's something really cheap. The Chinese come and grab it all, all the copper, all the nickel, all the things. But it's the greatest economics the world has ever known is the, the matrimony between North and South America, simply because God gave us more fresh water than everywhere else. So why not snap out of it? And I'm saying this to Americans yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Hello, folks. Either they're coming here and taking your English away, or you go over there and, and, and take their currencies away. That's the only <laughs> choice we have. The wall is symbolic unless you do my wall. My wall is the only one that will go 1,900 miles. And if it's built on the Mexican side of the border, yeah. you we can do it 20 but, years faster. But Manuel, Manuel, but, but again, I, I understand the currency, and I think it's a very important part of the economy that we need to, that needs to be depoliticized in Latin America. But, you know, that's not everything. Look at Panama. Panama, it's, compared to other Central American countries, has done pretty well. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's still a poor country. And, and why is that? Because, well, they have, I think, the best financial system in the world. They have no central bank. That's right. They have no FDIC. And they have continuous presidents. They, 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 Nobody stays as a dictator. But well, there's a lot of corruption. Well, 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 recently and so on. But, but the thing is that, you know, there are other areas of the economy that also need to be attacked. Because what we want those countries is to really grow, to become prosperous, as well the people. And then become partners. Okay, now you of, say that Panama of, is of poor, what? but how many economic crashes have they had since they dollarized? No, 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 of course. None. No, no, I'm telling you. Zero. They, they have the best financial Therefore, system Therefore, you have a basis for, for working. Why is that? Because the absence of a central bank, the absence of, a, of an FDIC, the absence of international reserves, mm -hmm. the, 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 the dollar is the, the, the international Whatever the reserve, banks have is what the country that, has. That, those are the international reserves. Then basically, the government does not inject something that we economists call moral hazard. Moral hazard is that once you're insured, you're not you're not as vigilant as being uninsured. Right. They are uninsured, That's so basically, what, yeah. they have to cope with that issue, behave very conservatively. They don't have a lender of last resort, so they have agreements with other banks and private banks, and then the private banks monitor those Panamanian banks better than the central Absolutely. bank and the, Fed, and, and the and authorities the Fed, and yeah. so on. And that's why, you, you know, it's a very sound financial system that has so never then, been so then, so, Okay, so then my theory is... Okay, no, no, it's absolutely true, and I am firm believer in that. But what I'm saying is that that has to be complemented with other areas of the economy which are mm -hmm. very important. And Protestant basic, schools. Well, well <laughs> one of the basic teachings out of England is that we is that they were able to implement the notion 
that we want a government that rules, but not a government that owns. Right. And that's one of the major problems in Latin America. Inherited from Spain, but of course we cannot keep on blaming the Spaniards. Come on, we gotta own the problem now. So do you you think Venezuela would actually have the smarts once they get rid out, okay. uh, would they okay. sell PDVSA and split it all okay. up? No, I don't, well, here's what, here's what I think. I think that in order to change profound rules of the game, you need a major what's called historical critical juncture. Mm-hmm. Okay, critical juncture. What can be a critical juncture? A U.S.-led invasion. Yeah, US-led? but we don't want to do that. We okay, don't want to do okay, that. Okay, 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 okay. But, but that... But maybe we want to do it. I have a better, there's a much better option. Maybe we didn't understand. You arm Colombia to the teeth and Brazil. Let them go in and fight for Latin America. Okay, well, let's say. Come on. Let's say. Let the Browns fight for each other. Well, let's say. But you know who screwed up? You know who screwed Latin America? Jimmy Carter with an arms embargo to this very day. But I think it has to be led. By the United States. I think nah. it has to be led by... Those oh, days are yeah. old. Oh, yeah. No, no, come on. I mean, America's they're, they're, got too used they, of shooting in a desert where it's easy. No, they no. don't do the Vietnam thing anymore. They shoot where there's no trees. No, let me, no special let me, forces let me, would do I, it. I, I they think, could lead the Colombians and Brazil. Lead them. Lead them. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, absolutely. It's gotta, it's, they got to be in control. Yeah. They got to be right. in control because you know how we are. Yes. You know how Latin Americans are. You know? Yeah. The I was told that when Pompeo wanted to give help... He didn't even no. he didn't even meet with Guaido. They didn't even meet. No, Guaido's a socialist. Okay, he's a, so, a socialist. Yeah. But he's thirty something years old. Yeah. You can work him. You can. You well, know. maybe, maybe he's got the guts to stand on a truck but, in the but, middle of but, town. Manuel, the problem is not intellectual. The problem is that politicians gain ever so much power by being the owners of the country. Right. Yes. So, so, so then you know it's not a matter of convincing right. them. Yeah, it's a matter of basically up. you know here it is. We have to do this, you know, PDVSA has to be sold, the oil has to be owned by the people, all the proceeds have to be distributed among the people so the government lives of the people. So now the government has no independent right. sources of financing right, 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 and right. therefore has to tax the people and negotiate with the people. Absolutely. And then we will we'll start having some quality of government after that. But before that, yeah, but it, you said, but you said that the... the, the um, uh-huh. I mean, because in Alaska they do that. You know, Sarah Palin was successfully able to get Monies for no, each. No, but she got taxes from the uh, oil. She did not own the oil. Right. That's yeah. the point I'm making. Yeah. That when you say you got to distribute it among the people, the the wealth of Maracay. Oh, yeah, no, you're no, meaning. No. You're meaning. You're, no, I'll tell you what I mean. Alaska what, what, type what, version. No, no, no. Alaska type version will not work because basically they have a fund, and that fund will be raided immediately. Right. <laughs> immediately. So yeah, what no, no what works that. is that all the corporate taxes that that oil companies right. pay are received are go directly to the people bypassing the, government directly right. they 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 they're distributed to everyone equally and put in, in bank accounts right and and then the government, Don't let the government with get no re- outsourced sources of revenue is forced to negotiate with the people taxes right and that way then the government will start living of the people yeah, that's, but, that's but can you actually collect taxes from Latin Americans? Well, I'm mean, here we have the fear of here we have the fear. I'll tell you which one. We easy to collect the the sales tax, sales tax, right? Sales tax, and, and more specifically, VAT taxes. 
which we don't want that, of course. Not in this but country. Not in this country. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's well, a tax. Very difficult to evade. Very right. difficult. Yeah, because you have to consume it. Yeah, better, right. better than an income tax. Better than and better than an income tax. Yeah, Alexander right. and that's Hamilton. That's the tax that we really need. Right. A sales tax, basically. Basically, unfortunately, of course, in my book, I have. <laughs> my version of a VAT tax. Okay. Mine are just called pal- well, mine are called raw material taxes, pallet yeah, taxes, yeah. and copycat but taxes. But let's eliminate the income tax before and, we implement and, that one. Exactly. Right, right. That's yes, the point I make. Yes. But to yes. do that, you have to get rid of seventeen too, where you have to uh, remind Americans to pay attention to their state capitals, the fifty state capitals, because we don't pay attention to our capitals because we vote directly to senators, and that was a way of the wealthy to dumb down the American people by passing Amendment 17 uh-huh. so that you that you gave people the game show of voting for Marco Rubio when, in fact, you should have been worried about their state senator putting in Marco Rubio, uh, selecting him from his state legislature. Uh, Plus, in, he indirect, goes, indirect. Uh, yeah, so you pay attention yeah, to your state to your politics. State and then, and then the, 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 keep your party in power so they put the senator. And they put the senator. But the most beautiful thing about. So that was a 17th Amendment that oh, it directly. Right. Ruined the country. It bypassed the, the, right. the state. No, and you, gave the peop- and you gave the people power. Like, oh, I get to vote for my senator. No, jerk. You get to vote for him to steal once he gets to Washington. Yeah. Whereas you have no recall power. The most important part was at the stake and say to the senator, hey, we're tired of yeah. your BS. Coming yeah. back home, we're getting, we're putting in a new one. Yeah. And now the Marco Rubios, look, you would never had this Nelson for so long. Bill Nelson would have, the landing on the moon would have lasted maybe. Bill, Bill didn't land. He just went up there. No, he right. went to the moon. No, he didn't. I don't know. No, he didn't land on the moon, but he no. went up to. He was Listen, in- Manuel, I think that there are things in life that have to be consulted directly to the people. And, and and this is why, remember, when Congress is in session, our liberties are in jeopardy. Right. Absolutely. So things like taxation, oh, you want to raise taxes? You want to ask the people. Forget about representatives, you know? Forget yeah, put about it to that. the people. No, 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 put it to the people. We'll oh, ne- you want to pay more taxes? Let's see if we want to pay more taxes. We don't want to pay more taxes. We don't want to pay more taxes. So then you have to tell the poor people, so, hey, you're so, not getting any more. So, so that's called direct <laughs> democracy. And, and there are things that have to be subjected to direct democracy, and one of them is taxation. Yeah, yeah. The the, the people would never. And well, we, we have see it, it, and we have it at the state level when they have propositions and so on, you know. But we don't have it something at the nation, national level, you know. No, we don't go. Uh, we Ed, have, we don't go to vote for the increase of sales taxes, do we? In no, some states, you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but uh, not here. Not no, here. no. What I'm saying is that you have examples of direct democracy at the state level when you have those propositions. You know, mm-hmm. they're subjected to the electorate, to the to the state electorate. Well, yeah. yeah. We if you raise taxes, some, we some, take some, you out. Some. Well, in Illinois, they're having a, a constitutional amendment next year proposing to create a progressive income tax, <laughs> which is a bad thing. <laughs> but at least people get to vote on it. Right. People get. Well, to vote. one and you also. Uh, also, when state governments do things like that, you can leave the state. Right. You can't right. leave the United States. Right, you know? right, so right, right. You, right, right. you leave good. the state, that's and that's what happened. A Republican president, a Republican governor of Illinois vetoed the, the tax increase, yeah. and they overrode his veto. Yeah. And guess what? 100,000 people Left. within a month are in Ohio. That's right. That's okay? Right. And then it, it allows 
uh, uh, I think Wisconsin also benefited from people. Yeah, Wisconsin, that, Indiana, yeah, everybody. It's Texas. Yeah, they all left, in, uh, and then guess what happened? It allowed us to finally win the governorship of Ohio and Wisconsin. And, Wisconsin. and wow. guess what? Those legislatures in those two states, in protest, went to Illinois and wouldn't sign the guy's budgets in both cases. In the case of uh, Scott Walker, and what was the other case where... Uh, they were. He had to call them back into session. They were in Illinois in protest, and guess what? They win by this much. You know, Scott Walker won his reelection by this. Yeah. No, he won. He won. Well, he finally lost. He finally eventually yeah, that, because that he one, extended yeah. it too long. Because he wins yeah. his victory, mm-hmm. wins his reelection. No, he won his tenure, not his tenure. What's that called? Censure. He was trying to get a third term. Yeah, he, right, he, and yeah, because he couldn't be president. Se las pasó. Yeah. Good. At least the people yeah. corrected themselves because. As much as he was a nice man, come on, you got to know when you're over, uh, overbuild. Well, he should have run but for the, Senate. But, but what we're talking here is really the beauty of federalism. Right. Absolutely. The beauty of federalism. But we've been, you know? but, but got, we've been arguing federalism for 300 years, it seems, and yet it still not, hasn't won the argument, hands down. Right? We all agree well, that federalism well, is, better, is... Well, yes. people leave. You were saying it. You know, they... they. I mean, the rich guy just... Uh, it's New happening York. in New York. That's right. It's well, that's that's the mastery of the, tr- of so, the Trump tax plan. You can no longer oh, deduct... Oh, that deduction. That, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Teaching them to, low tax, to lower taxes. Yeah, yeah and the New Yorkers came to Florida. And we'll leave it on that note. It's 7 yeah. o'clock. It's the end of the country, <laughs> right, conservatives. Good. New Yorkers, come on down. This is, You're the next contestant on Florida's Right. The price is right. WSQF 94.5. How about a beautiful song by the Rolling Stone called Beast or Burden? How about them apples? Stay free, my friends. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube, Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.